Let's pray as we get into the Word. Father, today we come before you in awe. We stand before you. You are majestic. You are bigger than what we can imagine. We give you praise and honor and glory for who you are, that you even thought about us. It is not. The shocking thing is not that many will be separated from you for all eternity. The shocking thing is that you had the mercy and the grace to save. And we are thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to talk to you, with you about three ways to respond to Christmas. How do we respond to this day in which we are? We celebrate this day every year. And the celebration oftentimes ring empty and hollow. Because we know we're celebrating Christ, but how ought we to respond to this message of Christmas? Really, what we are doing is we are celebrating the incarnation. The incarnation, God becoming a man. We talked over the last two weeks as to why He became a man. He took on flesh so that He could be as we are. He laid aside His glory as Lord of the universe. And He became dependent upon those who, whom He came to save. As a baby, He became dependent. But He was literally born into this world so that He could die. Because God is eternal and cannot die. Had to become human in order to die. So you could save humans from what? From sin. Many think that we celebrate Christmas because we thank God for the forgiveness provided at the cross. But really, it's not the forgiveness for our sins that we are only celebrating. It's not only the forgiveness of our sins. It is the freedom from sin and its consequence. It's the freedom from being a slave to sin and its consequence that we celebrate because now we are not a slave to sin, but a slave unto righteousness. Many Bibles love to translate that as servant, but really not servant. Slave is the real word. That is who we are. Every man serves somebody. Everyone serves something. But since we are born again, we are now servants, slaves of righteousness. Amen. Steve, can you make it one degree warmer, please? Thank you. I want to read to you at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Most believe that Jesus came to save us from hell. No, he came to save us from sin. The consequence thereof is hell, but he came to save us from it. Last week, we saw exactly how he did it. We celebrate... It's going to go away in a little bit. Don't worry. It's just warming up. <laughs> the jet engines have been started. Steve, thanks a lot for that, brother. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We learned that what Jesus did, how he saves you from the fear of death that holds you bondage, is that he went and he took from the hands of Satan... He took the list of all of your offenses. He took that list from your accuser. He took that list from your prosecutor, Satan. And he went and he nailed it to the cross. You have a prosecutor. But guess what? Your prosecutor has nothing to prosecute you over. You have an accuser. But he has nothing to accuse you over. Because his list of accusations against you was taken out of his hands and was nailed to the cross. Therefore, you are free from the fear of being prosecuted. This is how Jesus came and he saved you from slavery to fear. Remember last week we read in scripture? And so here we see in verse 20, but when he... When he had thought this over, this is Joseph, he decided to not send it away because an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you shall name him Jesus for he shall save or he will save his people from their sins. He removed that list, that record of sins. And nailed it to the cross. Now, all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Verse 22. Behold. This is repeating the very words of the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they shall name him Emmanuel. Which is translated, everybody with me? God with us. So it is my goal today to make the Christmas story more real to you than ever before, ending with a call to action on how we ought to respond to this Christmas call, and it will re revolutionize our lives. So I know this is Christmas, but I would like for you to um, put your thinking caps on and uh, follow me as I would like to go through a lot of the setting up so that we can get to this call of action. In Matthew 1.23, Isaiah wrote this prophecy. And he wrote this prophecy 700 years before it was fulfilled. If you ever wondered who was determining the events of history, let me help you folks, no man makes history outside of God. 700 years before the birth of Christ, here is the prophet announcing that it was going to happen. He says in Matthew 1, 23, 
Verse 23, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The first is, what does it mean that God is with us? The second we're going to talk about, what does it mean that God is with us? Third, we're going to talk about what does it mean that God is with us? So first, what does it mean that God is with us? Well, it means that Jesus came to be with us in the flesh, Jesus being fully God, 100% God. Nothing was taken away from God in order to be Jesus. He is fully God. Nothing was taken away from Him. He wasn't diminished in any way. He was the express image of God as He walked among men. Many people view it as, oh, He was 50% God, 50% man. No. Remember, back in the first and second and third century, they had to fight all these different heresies that came about there to fight Gnosticism, which is believing that you can have a personal, individual revelation that's extra-biblical, but it's exclusive to you. That's Gnosticism. Do you guys remember the book, The Secret, that came out? There are all these extra-biblical, divine knowledge that comes to individuals exclusively. That's Gnosticism. And the early church fathers excommunicated all those Gnostics. You even had the Gnostic Gospels. And then came Marcionism. But Marcion believed that Jesus was less than the Father. Why? Because God the Father, He is perfect and He's fully God. He's uncreated. Nobody created Him. He is the uncreated creator of all things. And inside of His creation, well, He sits above His creation. And inside of His creation, there is born Jesus. And Jesus being part of the creation is therefore lesser than God the Father. Guess what the early church fathers did with him? They excommunicated him for saying that. Jesus is fully God. He is the complete expression of God the Father. And he walked among us. So what does it mean that God is with us? Well, the central message of Christmas is that the Creator, Almighty God, King of the universe, now walked the earth. He entered His own creation in order to save those whom the Father had given Him. This, is, this what I'm speaking of right here, is referred to by theologians as the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. This one truth has become a major stumbling block to very large portions of humanity. If you think about it, you have Judaism, or the Jews. They believe that there was a man by the name Jesus, but he wasn't God. He wasn't fully God. Then you have Islam, a very large portion of, Christ, uh, of the world. Islam, they also believe that there was a prophet by the name Jesus, but he's not God. You see, here is where the difference comes. Christianity believes that Jesus is fully God. You're in 
rests the differences. Because Scripture tells us that. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, like the Son was with the Father. But it says that they're one, because the Word was God. But in verse 14, it says, And the Word then became flesh and dwelt among us. So according to the Apostle John, yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the overseers of the church were given a mandate. It says, quote, shepherd the church of God. Here's the mandate. Shepherd the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Well, who purchased the church with his blood? Jesus. But here it says, shepherd the church of God, God's church, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Therefore, the one who spilled his blood to purchase the church is, in fact, God himself. John 20, verse 28 says, and Thomas answered and said to him, Thomas answered Jesus. The apostle answered Jesus, and all the other apostles agreed with him. And he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So the apostles saw Jesus as being fully God. You see, the Bible is very clear in its teaching that Jesus, the baby that was born and raised by Mary Joseph, is in fact God himself. That's what it means when it says, God with us. Secondly, we want to look at what does it mean to say that God was, is with us. What does that mean? Well, the greatest and the mighty creator has decided to put himself with us. That's what it means. How? By becoming one of us. He took on flesh. By coming alongside us, to walk with us, by joining us. He chose to keep company with us, to communicate with us his gospel of peace. Now, I want you to watch this quick. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we see God showed himself in ways that caused men to tremble. God showed himself in ways that caused men to fall down on their faces, prostrate before the Lord. Every time God shows up, men were terrified. Think about how absolutely terrifying it was when God showed himself. He revealed himself to Job, the Bible shows us, in a tornado. It's like a hurricane. When you watch the news and see the devasta how devastating tornadoes are, wipes out entire cities, devastates entire cities. How it sometimes, you know, eliminates communities, flattens buildings, you see cars flying. Imagine what Job saw when God revealed himself to Job. He saw something that was overpowering. When God showed himself to Job, Job saw something that was not just overpowering, but, but could, could possibly destroy everything in its path. He saw something that was absolutely unstoppable. He saw something to run from, to hide from. As people do when a tornado hits. 
And in the same way, God shows himself as being that way, terrifying. Think about when God showed himself or revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Abraham as a smoking furnace hovering in the air. It's like this consuming fire hovering in the air. Traveling through all the pieces of the dead animal that Abraham had cut up as God was making a covenant. Now think about what they saw when God revealed himself to the children of Israel in the desert as a pillar of fire. Imagine what this pillar of fire could have looked like. And sometimes people see like a little candle with a flame. That was not it. Why? Because there were approximately, they guessed, three million Israelites walking through the desert. And this pillar of fire was keeping three million Israelites warm. I remember going to Canada with Tina. And I remember when we were standing below the waterfall. I'm trying to remember what's that waterfall. The Niagara Falls. Thank you. <laughs> I remember standing underneath uh, where the Niagara Falls coming down, you can take a little hike there and they give you rain, uh, rain jackets and everything. And as we're standing down there, it is so overwhelming and powerful how tons and tons of gallons of water is just coming crashing down that escarpment. And as, as I was looking at the power of that water coming down, I thought, imagine if that wasn't water but instead a pillar of fire. I thought about how big that pillar of fire had to have been in order to warm three million Israelites in the middle of a desert. It's an amazing thing. When God shows himself, it is pretty terrifying. You get the idea that he's unstoppable. You get the sense that he can consume anything in his way. And nobody, nobody can push it back. Every time God showed himself, he was terrifying. And I'm showing this to you because now that God has revealed himself as a baby, we seem to treat him differently, don't we? Now that he's a baby, we do the happy, uh, um, hi, birthday boy with, you know, or we say, or we do the, um, the whole irreverent kind of Jesus is my homeboy um, we treat him differently now that he, is, he was born as a baby. He looked like us. We treated him like he's one of us. Forgetting that he's fully God and fully man. We treat him like he's no longer terrifying. We treat him as, like he's no longer awesome in power. We treat him like he's no longer majestic. No longer sovereign and no longer all-powerful as the God he was in the past. We tend toward Marcionism, where we treat him like he's lesser than the creator God. That every time he showed himself to anyone, it was terrifying. We now tend to treat God as if he had changed. As if he now has become less in all those terrifying attributes which made us tremble and fall down to worship him. In the Old Testament, we see people approach God, or where God showed himself to them, there was always the words, do not fear. Why? Because they were always in fear. He was terrifying. Nowadays, when people enter the presence of God, 
they have to be told to be respectful. They have to be told to be reverent. And you wonder why when children grow up, they're in children's church, pizza, games, friends. Mom, I want to go to church. Why? Pizza, game, friends. I'm not saying it's necessarily the case here. Of course not. Because we tend to go, we tend to work against that. We want the kids, sorry Steve, we want the kids to remain reverent before the Lord. But what happens at the, in the church at large around the world is you'll notice that when somebody graduates high school, they graduate church. Because they were never part of church. They were part of something else. I, I know this because I used to be a youth pastor. I'm telling you, I was a youth pastor for what, 18 years? And I wondered about that. The church literally empties out. That's the biggest drain in the church is at graduation day. People leave high school, they leave church. I'm done with my program that I used to attend while I was under my parents. And they can treat God that way because to them, to them he ain't, He's not terrifying. He's not majestic and all-powerful. To them, He has been trivialized, in their eyes at least. But I think it's time for us to look at what who God really is. Because every time you see God, you change. And when we see Him as He is, when we see Him on that day, we will be as He is. You know this to be true. Every time something about God has been revealed to you, you change. This is why the doctrine of total depravity is so important because when we recognize just how gloriously perfect and righteous God is, how holy He is, that's when we realize how far we have fallen from being compatible to a perfectly holy God. When we see Him, we, we desperately need Him then. We, we change in our desire to be right with Him. If we don't see how perfectly holy and righteous He is, we think we're equal to Him. Walk, down, walk around downtown and go ask anybody, what will happen when you see, when you get to the gates? Uh, or why would God allow you into His heaven? Into His presence? What will they say? 99% of the chance people are going to say, well, I'm not all that bad. Nah. That's good. <laughs> What's the problem? They don't know God. If they knew God's righteousness and His holiness, His perfection, they would recognize how not good they are. For we've all fallen short of the glory of God because we are sinners. But we don't see ourselves as that. Because we see ourselves as good. Why? Because we don't know how good God really is. And we're comparing ourselves to a trivial God. To a small God. To a God that's like us. Now that God has come to us as a baby in human form, we've diminished Him. We've diminished Him and His awe. That's my question to you. Do you diminish your awe of God now that we view Him as man because of the incarnation? Have you diminished your reverence of God, your adoration of a mighty and terrifying God? God is with us, and the fact that He is with us should not make Him less majestic and powerful. 
So we talked about what does it mean that God is with us. We just looked at what does it mean that God is with us. We're coming at the end of this as to how we ought to respond to these three truths about that verse. Now we're going to look at who is this us that God is with? Who is the us that God is with? Here is something very obviously exclusive about this statement. God is with us, said the Jews. Here are four very specific groups I would like to point out that's very clearly outlined in scriptures. Who is the us that God is with? Well, the first group is, of course, exegetically speaking, if you want to look at the author's original intent when he penned these words, he had in mind the Jews. It was only later in the book of Acts where we see that the apostles realize that God has offered repentance to the Gentiles also. Remember? The Gentiles were repenting, and the apostles went, whoa. <laughs> it's like, obviously, they're repenting. They're running to Christ. This is huge. We now see, the apostles said, that God has also granted repentance to the Gentiles. This is amazing. We thought it was exclusive, exclusively came for the Jews. But here the Gentiles are also now being touched by God. The second group, you see it beyond just the Jews. Scripturally speaking, we now know that Jesus came for the Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles, and all those who were far off. And he sent us into all the world to preach the gospel to who? All the nations. All people's groups. All ethnicities. Because within those groups, there are the sheep that are not part of that fold. Jesus said to the, to the, to the Pharisees, you do not believe because, the reason you do not believe is because you are not my sheep. He didn't say to them, because you're not my sheep, therefore you don't believe. No, no, he says you don't believe because you are not mine. But, he said, I have many sheep elsewhere. Not of this fault that I am going to round up and bring into my kingdom. Who are they? They are people from all different nations. All different people's groups. Every different nationality and ethnicity. There is his sheep. We at Christ Nation made up hope of the whole you world. found this message meaningful. Who's the third Please group? Please feel free so the first to share it with anyone that you think needs to hear it. They're the us. We hope you can join us soon for a Sunday experience. Because he said to the Pharisees, For more information, you do not believe because you are not part of the group I'm referring to that I came to be with. Thank you and God bless you. You are not part of the us he came to be with. Then he said, But there are people around the world, there are sheep in all other nations. Part of my kingdom. And then number three, the third group of people, part of the us, more specifically so, refers to the lowly of heart, refers to the humble, refers to the weary, refers to the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Talked about this a lot. The poor in spirit 
aren't those who have no dollars. <laughs> the poor in spirit are those who are spiritually poor. In other words, bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. They're the ones that go like the, you know, when the Pharisee and the, and, and the tax collector went to the temple. And the Pharisee said, he prayed first and he says, thank God, I'm not like all these other people. <laughs> he said, thank God, you know. By the way, not only am I not like them. He says, look at all these things I do. I pray. I bring my tithe. Man, I'm awesome. I do a lot. And while he was standing over there, pounding his chest, boasting, that tax collector, that non-Jew, he falls on his knees and he's pounding his chest saying, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. God, have mercy upon me. I'm spiritually bankrupt. God, have mercy. I am bankrupt. I'm, I have nothing to pay to enter. I have nothing to bring to show that, to, to pay for my, the penalty of my sin. My sin debt is forever before me. God have mercy. You know that there's a problem. I'm, I'm, I think it's still too cold in here. Sorry, Steve. Just that one, Steve. I, I think that there's a problem when somebody, a Christian, starts standing on their rights versus begging for mercy. We have no rights outside of Christ. Let me say it again. We have no rights outside of Christ. That's an American thing. Let me, say, let me say it to you this way. If you stand before a judge, and the judge says to you, Brother, you have sped. You have broken the speed limit way too many times. Plus, this time around, you broke the speed limit by, by 100 miles per hour. And you had too much to drink. You know what? I'm taking your license away from you. And you go like, no, you're not. I demand mercy. What? Yeah, I demand mercy right now. My rights to have mercy. You realize how inconsistent that is? That mercy cannot be demanded. You can beg for mercy, but you can't demand it. And it's by His mercies that you are saved. You can only beg God for mercy. God doesn't have to save anyone to remain just. No, if He lets the whole world go to hell, He'd still be just. But He chooses to have mercy, the Bible says on some, and harden others. That's his prerogative. He's allowed to do whatever he wants to do and remains just. You cannot demand God show mercy. You can beg for it. And this is the difference between the Pharisee, people who demand mercy, they're Pharisees. People who beg for mercy, they're like that tax collector. And Jesus said today, he will go home forgiven, but not so the Pharisee. Not so the Pharisee. The person who truly is part of the us is the lowly, the humble, the weary, and the poor in spirit. 
Those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it. Those who have nothing to offer, like the shepherd boys. Those, like the shepherd boys, who were the lowest ranking humans in society. They, they knew they didn't deserve anything. Mercy was the only thing they could rely on and beg for. They were the lowest ranking humans in society. They came to Christ with nothing. To come to Christ, all you need is nothing. But many people do not have it. They, have, they, they come with something. Many people expect to, to be accepted by Christ because they view themselves as sufficiently valuable. They view themselves as a good person, having sufficient moral standards. They have the moral high ground. They believe they have good intentions. They measure everybody by their actions. They measure themselves by their intention. God knows my heart. You've heard this. You may have said it. God knows my heart. That's the problem. He does. But to come to Christ, God demands that you come poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt, God. Broken, contrite heart. Humbled with an empty hand. I'm not coming to give. I'm coming to receive. These are the ones God is worth. Yes, so God came for the Jews, some of them. God came for the sheep from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity. Number three, God came for the lowly, the humble, and the spiritually bankrupt. The fourth group Part of the us, God with us, that fourth group, and most specifically, the us are those whom the Father gave to Jesus as a gift. He gave this us to Jesus as, here is your bride. Save her. She is yours. Purchase her. Many cultures still do that. Purchase her. You go, no, Jesus came for everyone. John 6, 37 then. It says, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. Has everybody come to Christ in the world? No. But those whom the Father has given to him, yes, they have. Because Jesus said, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 39. And this is the will of, the, the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? Father God. This is God's will. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing. He is the good shepherd. He loses none of whom the Father gave him. Who's part of the us that he is with. John 17 verse 2. He gives eternal life, Jesus Gives eternal life to who? To each one you have given him, Father. He gives eternal life, life eternal, as God has life, which is to know God, to everyone God has given him. John 17, 2. John 17, verse 9. I ask on their behalf. Watch this. Jesus is praying. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but on behalf of those whom you have given me. I pray for, I intercede 
not for the world. I intercede for this, whom you have given me, whom I will lose none of, and every one of them will come to me. I'm the good shepherd. I have come to save them. But to the Pharisees, you cannot believe, and you do not believe, because you're not part of my sheep. That's what Jesus said. Here lies the offense of the gospel, and many trip over it. Jesus said, blessed are you who are not offended in me. Blessed are you. That is who the us refers to in scriptures when it says God with us. Some Jews, the sheep of all the different nations, the humble and the and those who are spiritually bankrupt, and then the bride of Christ, those whom God gave him. I want to end off today with three ways we can respond to this very message of God with us. How do we respond with the incarnation? How do we respond to the incarnation, to Christmas? Well, number one, applying God with us in this way. If God is truly with us, and we truly believe this, my question is, why have we got limits? Why do we have limitations in life? Do you believe God can do what He wants? Yes, He's God. Do you believe God is with you? Yes, Emmanuel. Then stop living like the Almighty is not with you. Many people live like He's absent. Start living peacefully. In a world that's burning up. It's like, hey, God's with me. God's with you. What are you so concerned about? Hey, I, I find myself doing this often. I go to my computer, I turn on the news, and I walk away. Like, wow. <laughs> what are we going to do? Have you seen inflation? You go like, no, 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 God's with us, but not when it comes to inflation. Lord knows. We got two more years. <laughs> hey, folks, God's with you. It doesn't matter who's in Washington. God's with you. Stop living like He's not. If you're becoming more and more cynical about life, it is because you do not really believe that the almighty, terrifying, supreme, and sovereign God is in fact with you. How many of you haven't been... Have ever caught yourself becoming more and more cynical as the years go on? <laughs> I know. Isn't it true? You guys are so humble. You're all repenting. At least this section is. <laughs> After a while, there's no more joy in life. Just nothing. Because everybody's after me. Really? They don't even know you exist. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> 
God knows you and He's with you. Start living like He is. If you've given up hope in God's promises, it's because you don't really believe that the Almighty is still with you. You look at other people and you go like, I can see God's with them. Look at how they live. Look at what they drive. I'm not so sure that He's with me. Did you know poverty is relative? <laughs> I don't know if, if we actually know anybody who's truly poor, unless you do know somebody that's truly without a home and without an opportunity to work themselves out of the place they're in. Those who are truly poor are those who have nothing. Neither do they have opportunity to change their nothingness. <laughs> That's truly poor. When the Bible talks about the poor, giving to them, it's really talking about actual poor people, not those who don't have enough money to pay for their iPhone this year, this month. It's like, oh, man, I'm so poor, I can't even pay my iPhone bill. <laughs> That's not poor. If you look back on 2022 and no longer have courage for the future, because you do not really believe that the Almighty God is with you. If you say, ah, oh, you know what, I don't want to have more children because, you know, I don't want to bring more children into this horrible world. Well, it's like you're really speaking as if it's you against the whole system, right? It's just me against the whole world. You know, when you walk into the mall sometimes, that's what happens to me. Especially on Black Friday, I look at everybody. I'm thinking like, man, if these people knew what I believed, They'd throw me out of the small. Yeah. I'd be canceled straight off the bat. <laughs> I'm like, it's me against the world. I'm the only one. No, God's with you. God's with me. Amen? If you can identify with all of this, if this is you, then I want to encourage you, like myself, to repent. Stop acting like He's not with us. Oh, we celebrate Christmas but we act like He's not with us. Emmanuel, God with them. <laughs> Poor me. <laughs> Why am I still single? Where are you, God? I always love how the world kicks God out of everything, and then when planes hit the towers, it's like, where was God? Well, hey, <laughs> God is with us. I'm just wondering if you're part of the us, <laughs> right? Live a life filled with hope. Why? Because God is with us. Live a life confidently trusting in Scripture. Why? Because He is with you. This is the message of the incarnation. This is the message of Christmas. Now let's talk about how to apply the truth that God is with us. God is with us. You would live different if you had a revelation of the fact that God is with you. Now let's learn about what it means that God is with you. What are we doing to be with Him? You see, when you realize that God forgave you for a lot, it's easier to forgive other people. When you realize God's been so merciful to me, it's easier to be merciful to others. 
When God's been so generous to me, it's easy when I have that revelation to be now generous to others. But here's a truth that God is with us. My question is, what are we doing to be with Him after realizing what He had to do in order to be with us? I'm telling you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, in all of its facets, is sufficient to turn the whole entire world of believers, cover the earth with the glory of God, it will become the garden of Eden. If, if we allow the gospel to undo the sin in our lives, how does the gospel undo the sin in our lives? How does the gospel change me daily? Just as I mentioned, the gospel shows me how I have been forgiven. That's why. On that basis, I now go and I forgive. The gospel shows me how God loved me, for God so loved that He gave. That in itself, on that basis, drives me to love even my enemies because He loved me while I was His enemy. Now, I treat my enemies different because of the gospel. I walk without shame and guilt because of the gospel. When I see how generous God has been to me, I can be generous to His. On that basis... Of the gospel. Everything changes for me. When I realize that the gospel teaches me that it was God who did what he did. He laid aside his glory. He humbled himself and he came to be dependent upon those whom he came to save. He became a man so that he could die. When I look at everything he's done for me in order to be with me. Then how am I not driven to be with him? You know how it works when somebody goes through so much to be with you, you go like, well, that is really, that really humbles me when I realize how much you gave up in order to spend this time with me. That humbles me. It's true for you too. When you realize somebody's sacrifice in order to be with you. The question is, what is our sacrifice to be with him? Do you know that only 80% of the churches, evangelical churches in the United States are actually open today? Did you know that? Yeah, 20%. 20% of the churches in the United States today are closed. You know why? It's Christmas. <laughs> so what are you doing to be with him? Are you too busy maybe? Are you too offended? Oh, church hurt. <laughs> Too lazy, too hurt, too cynical, too ambitious. Ah, I got a lot of things to do. That doesn't stop. You know, I got to work and keep the doors open. <laughs> got to make more money. What is the reason for you not being able to be with him? Exactly what absorbs your time? Everybody's got 24 hours a day. What do you do with those 24 hours? I'm busy, I'm busy. Yeah, everybody's busy doing something with those 24 hours. Busy making money, busy sleeping, busy. Everybody's busy. The question is, when you look at what kept you busy, you know what you have prioritized, right? Exactly what distraction is so important that you simply cannot ignore it for at least an hour, two hours, a day. Spend time with God. Exactly what has captured your desire to the point where you prefer to be elsewhere instead rather than be with Him. Now, in no means am I saying that you have to be at church, part of a church, to be with Him. But I can tell you right now, if you don't want to be part of the body, His body, 
it's very revealing as to your desire to be with him. Because this is his body, right? The church is his body. Whatever, he's gonna, whatever it is going to cost you to be with him has nothing, nothing in comparison to what it cost him to be with you. When last have I been humbled by the fact that he did what he did in order to be with us? So now we understand a little clearer about what it means or how to apply the fact that it's God that's with you and that it's God that's with you. How does it cause you to respond? Well, suddenly I want to be with Him. Suddenly I want to walk and live and talk like it's God that's with me. And I do not live in fear of, in this world. I'm not cynical. God is with me. You should be so aware of the fact that God is with you to the point where other people go like, yeah, he's joined the wrong church, unfortunately. <laughs> he's gone a little weird. <laughs> he's so confident. <laughs> he's always happy. What's wrong with him? Yeah. Thirdly, and we close with this, how to apply the truth that God is with us. If God is with you, here's what I'd like to say about that. If God is with you and you know those true things, those things that God is with you, then your lukewarm and half-hearted response to God is simply not rational. I tell you what, if you ask anybody who's really on fire for the Lord, if you ask them, do you pray enough? No, I don't pray enough, man. I need to pray more. It's like, hey, do you, do you, do you feel like you're studying enough word? No, I need another hour in the day. Man, I've only spent three hours studying today. I got up early this morning. I'm staying up late tonight. I'm getting into the word, but I need more time. It's like, have you repented lately? I have, but I need to repent more. I need to, you're like, do you need to come closer to God? Yeah, I need, even, I need to come closer to God. The person that's like that is the person who is not lukewarm. You always know a person is lukewarm when they go like, no, I'm good. No, I spent time. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I, got. I was connecting with God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always say that it takes God to want God. Really, the more of God you have, the more of God you want. The less of God you have, the more you think you don't need Him. So how do we apply the fact that God is with us? If God is with you, then your lukewarmness, your half-hearted response to God, is simply not a rational response. You ask anybody who's far away from God, hey, are you right with God? Oh yeah, Jesus and I, we're like this, man. This is the sign that that person is far from the Lord, right? <laughs> you say, are you right with God to the person who's really close to God, like, yeah, I really want to be more right with him. <laughs> That's the true response of a person who's close to God. If God is with you, then your indifference and your apathetic response to the work of God is simply not a sane thought. It's not normal, it's not coherent, it's not reasonable, and it's not logical. Somebody once wrote, anybody who ever met Jesus Christ 
only had one of three responses. If God is with you, you will have one of these three responses. They were either terrified and wanted to get away from him. Or number two, they wanted to kill him or stone him. But number three, they fell down on their knees, worshipped him, and gave him everything they had. <laughs> any, other, any other relationship with Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, is irrational. You either run from him, you try to get rid of him, or you fall on your knees and you worship him. But you cannot have a lukewarm, half-hearted, apathetic relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot be half-hearted, lukewarm, or apathetic if God is with you. So today, let us look at this Christmas story of God revealed to us at the birth of Jesus and let us see what it truly means that God is with us. And let us respond honestly, truthfully, and entirely. Let's pray. Father, today, thank you so much for mercy. We're not here demanding stuff from you, God. We are here begging you for mercy on us, on our family members. Thank you, God, that we can come to you in reverence, in awe at your majesty, your glory, your perfectly holy character. We stand amazed at your attributes, at who you are. We thank you for your presence, your presence on us and in us, drawing us. No man can, no man can. Every man has an inability and no man can come to you, Jesus, unless the Father draws them. And today, I pray, Lord God, for your mercy upon every person here and every person watching, that you continue to draw us that you work within us both to will and to do your good pleasure. That we will become more and more thirsty as we become more and more satisfied by you. Thank you, Father God, that we will remain hungry and thirsty. That we will be satisfied. But that we will look at this day, 2,000 years down the corridors of time, we look back and we place our faith in all that Christ did for us. Just like Isaiah looked 700 years down ahead, down the corridors of time and saw the coming Messiah and had faith in him. So we look 2,000 years back down the corridors of time. We have our, put our faith in Christ knowing that we come with empty hands, we are spiritually bankrupt. And our hearts are broken before you because we know we have been your enemy, but you have had mercy upon us. And while we were yet your enemies, you died for us. You came for us. You came to us in the form of Jesus. And today, Father, we, we refuse to live like God isn't with us. We refuse to have so many things going on in life that we won't, we, 
that we will not be able to be with you, God. Most of all, we are humbled. That's how we respond. We are humbled because we know you are with us. Among all the peoples of the world, you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word? Amen.